The book of Numbers is during that period for the children of Israel after they had left Egypt and are traveling to the promised land. So God is chronicling their time in the wilderness. And the name Numbers refers to the censuses that are taking place as they're going through uh, the wilderness. And God is speaking to them in the wilderness. It's applicable to us because sometimes in our journey in this life, it is a wilderness. Yet God is faithful and he uh, speaks to us. The theme of tonight's message is consecrated, consecrated in three areas, in sexual integrity, uh, consecrated in commitment, the Nazarite vow, and then being consecrated in giving. We see the tribes giving as the the tabernacle was dedicated to uh, the Lord. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time in the word. Father, we thank you for your love for us, your presence with us. It's your love that causes us to desire to be set apart for you, for our our lives to be completely surrendered to you as we've sung. As we read your word, we we believe in the power of your word and may it encourage us tonight. Lord, for some it's been a long day and Lord, would you just give us the strength to be able to receive from you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. So if you fall into these categories, leprosy, you have discharge or you're defiled by a corpse, you have to be put outside of the camp. And the reason for this is because God dwells in the midst of the camp and his holiness. And remember, as we read the scriptures, it's all pointing us to Jesus, our need for Christ. And if it wasn't for Christ, we would be put out of the camp. We'd be put out of God's presence. We would not be able to be with uh, the Lord. But Jesus went outside the camp, and he was crucified for us. Leprosy is a picture of sin. What it does to the physical body, the skin disease, is what happens to our soul, what sin does to our soul. And Jesus paid the price on the cross to cleanse us from leprosy. And when we believe in Christ, we receive his forgiveness and acceptance. We're seen in the blood of Jesus And we're welcomed into God's presence, welcomed into God's family. So thankfully, Jesus went outside of the camp to bring us back in. In verse 5, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sin, that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, that person is guilty. Then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. So you committed sin, you confess it to the Lord, receive forgiveness to the Lord, and if you've wronged someone, then seek to make it right, restore what you've done wrong, plus 20%, plus one-fifth. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution of the wrong must go to the Lord for the priests in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement has made for him. Every offering of all holy things of the children of Israel which they bring to the priests shall be his and every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any person gives the priest shall be his. So if there's no 
relative to give the restitution to. If that person has passed away that you've wronged, then you give it to the house of the Lord. Jesus paid the price for our restitution, for our redemption unto uh, the Father. In human relationships, for there to be restoration, it's wise for us to seek restitution. What are actions that we can take to show that we're sorry? How can we restore what our sin has, has broken? Verse 11, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully towards him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it's hidden from the eyes of the husband, and it's concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself. So in marriage, when there is adultery, when there is uh, sexual sin, is it's going to create a wedge in the relationship, in the marriage, even if the sexual sin is unknown. And in this case, the, the husband starts to feel, man, something's not right. Something's not the way that it should be, the way that it used to be. And there's this spirit of jealousy that is moved in him. And not in a sinful way, not in a negative way, but in this heart that it's to be exclusive. Sex is to be exclusive between the husband and the wife. And we go on from verse 14. Or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it, and put no frankincense on it because it's a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. So where are they to go when there is difficulty in their marriage? They're to go to the house of God. They're to go to the priests. And they're to go in worship. And the husband is to bring worship uh, before the Lord. I think this is wise for us in marriage. Those of us that are married, where do you go when there's problems in your marriage? Man, you go to the house of the Lord. You go to the fellowship of, of God's people. You come to, to worship. And there's accountability that takes place when we come before the Lord in, in his presence. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the flower of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Now, just to warn you, what we're going to read here is just, it's one of the more unusual things in Scripture. Because the priest is going to perform this ceremony to discover whether the wife has been unfaithful or not. And trusting that God's going to expose if there is sin. Then the priest shall stand the women before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is in the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, if no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from bitter water that brings a curse. But if you've gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you've defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then that priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, 
And he shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell and made this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, amen. So be it. That's what amen means. So here the husband's like, okay, things aren't quite right in our marriage. Maybe my wife's been unfaithful. They come to the priest and the priest says, okay, here's some water. And if you have sinned sexually, then you're going to drink this and it's going to cause your belly to rot and thigh to, to rot. Ultimately, the supernatural hand of God. God is going to bring correction uh, through this. But if you're innocent and you haven't done anything wrong, you'll drink the water and you'd be completely fine. Now, if this was the reality, I would think at this point, before you drink the water, it's confession time. It's like, okay, yeah, I blew it. I made a mistake. I, I've, sinned, I've sinned against God. You know, uh, I'm going to be, be honest about this. I can't hide it uh, any longer. Thankfully, Jesus became the curse for us, and he took our sin, and yes, our sexual sin, upon the cross. When we think of sex, oftentimes we see the perversion that the world gives, and the way selfishness gets in the way with sex. But God designed sex to be expressed and enjoyed inside of the covenant relationship between a husband and wife, male and female. Anything outside of that covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, it's sin and it actually brings destruction. I think deep down in our hearts, we know the weight of sexual sin. We know the the curse that sexual sin brings into our lives. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes and he says with sexual sin that you're actually destroying your, your soul. So if there's someone that you're engaged with in sexual sin and they're telling you these words, man, I love you. And I love you so much that we've got to engage in sex outside of of God's design. Know that they don't love you. Know that they lust you. Know that they're they're longing ultimately for for something that doesn't belong to them. If if they really love you, then they'll be committed to, to marry you. But anything outside of that does bring great destruction in our lives. And and Jesus in his love, he went and paid the price for sexual sin on the cross. And his blood forgives us of sexual sin. To where a woman is caught in adultery and brought to Jesus, wanting to stone her, wanting justice, and Jesus writes on the ground, he that's without sin to cast the first stone. They left from the oldest to youngest. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? Jesus offers forgiveness. Go your way and and sin no more. And that's God's message to us. Go your way and sin no more. As we've read this paragraph, it speaks of the wife being under the husband's authority. And if you'll notice closely, the word authority is in italics in the New King James Version. Whenever you see that, it's added by translators to try to help it read a little bit better. But it literally reads, under your husband. The idea of this, wives, is that you're under your husband's covering. Not under your husband in some type of way where you're inferior to your husband, but God has called the husband to be the head of the wife, providing covering. So husbands, that means we're to be loving, caring, serving, protecting, the way that Jesus 
protects and cares and serves for the church. And this is actually a beautiful place for a wife to be is under her husband's covering. And the idea here is, is a woman's going outside of her husband's covering and there's great, great responsibility upon us as husbands through the power of the Holy Spirit to provide a loving covering. Not an authoritative, domineering covering, but a Christ-like covering. So let's go on. Let's see what, what happens with this, this water that's to be drank in verse 23. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully told her to her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly shall swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself, and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. So thankfully, I can't emphasize enough the blood of Jesus. If you have committed sexual sin, don't walk around going, man, I'm a curse. I'm, I'm separated from God. I'm separated from God's people. Yes, it's sin. But as we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And hear those words of Jesus, go your way and sin uh, no more. Verse 29, this is the law of jealousy. When a wife will be under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then they shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall ex execute all this law upon her. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt. One of the questions that rises from the text is, what about a man who's in sexual sin? You know, what's the, what's the process there? And the scripture doesn't go into detail, but we do know that God also holds the husband accountable. And the husband's to be under God's covering the way that a wife is under her husband's covering. And God's gonna deal with the husband that's in sexual sin. And the husband needs to be held accountable if he's in sexual sin uh, as, as well. So it's important to, to hear that. Before we go to the next chapter, have you noticed how much in the Bible there is about sex? Like, thankfully, by God's grace, I've been able to teach the Bible for a lot of years now, and God's message on sex is pretty much in every book of the Bible. Sometimes as a pastor, I'm thinking, man, I am just talking about sex a lot more than I'm really comfortable with. But it's, it's part of going through the Bible verse by verse and, and chapter by chapter. But isn't it an area that, that we really struggle with and historically God's people have really struggled with? One of the real trademarks of God getting a hold of our life is to surrender our sexuality to him and to walk in his ways. If you find yourself in a place where 
in your heart or in your actions, you've gone into sexual sin, hear God's heart. He wants to forgive you. He wants to restore you. He wants repentance in our lives, turning away from that sexual sin. And God's plan for sexuality is good. We often hear what's forbidden in God's plan, which is absolutely true, but God's blessing. God designed sex, and he wants it to be a blessing inside of marriage. So hear the heart of God as we read through this. And if there's an area where sexual sin has entered your heart and your life, is get right with the Lord tonight. We really need one another in this area as brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to rely upon one another. Men, reach out to godly men. Women, reach out to godly women and say, let's walk together in purity in God's design for, for sexuality. It's our worship unto the Lord. Remember that. First and foremost, to to live in sexual integrity is in obedience to God. God's the one who is asking us to live this way. How well is this working for the world? The world just seems to be getting more confused when it comes to sexuality. And it's time for us to to take God's word for it and to trust him and say, I want to walk inside of your design. Flows right into chapter 6 with committing to God through a Nazarite vow. The Israelites could choose to take this vow unto the Lord. And the principle for us this evening is God may lead you into a season where you set something apart to draw closer to the Lord. You, you consecrate yourself in a greater way to draw near to him. So verse one of chapter six, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. So that's the whole purpose of this vow. Say, God, I want to be separated unto you. Lord, I'm taking a break from social media because I want to be separated unto you. Lord, I'm going I'm to fast some food for this period of time to draw near to you. I'm going to set aside coffee for a week because I want to draw near to you. Verse three, he shall separate from himself wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vineyard made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor shall he eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. No fruit of the vine. So no wine, but also no raisins, no grapes, anything that comes from the vine. The idea of this is to say, I don't want any alcohol in my system during this time of of celebration because I want to be completely, or during this time of consecration because I want to be completely set apart for the Lord. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he shall separate himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. So part of this commitment is I'm not going to cut my hair for this period of the vow. So say the vow was six months, man, the hair gets pretty long. The vow is a year, man, the hair gets really long. And this is an outward sign of your separation to God. Hair kind of identifies us, you know. 
certain look that we like and the way that we get our hair cut and there's some sort of identification there. And in this vow is this identification that even my physical look belongs to the Lord. I'm, I'm changing my physical look because I want to draw near to the Lord. So I'm pretty sure Pastor Doug, our children's pastor, <laughs> is in the midst of a Nazarite vow. Uh, have you guys like seen his hair recently? <laughs> so he last cut his hair a year ago when the whole quarantine started happening and he's just gone for it. And so I told him when he cuts his hair, I want a lock. I want one lock of his hair. Just just frame it in my office. So if, if you guys would, you know, share the love with them tonight, like after service, go down to children's ministry just go, wow, we really are impressed with your commitment to the Lord. We're loving this, this Nazarite vow. Apparently, Beth likes it, because I'll ask him about this, apparently, his wife, Beth, and he's like, Beth's digging the long hair, and as long as she likes it, then I'm going to keep growing it. So he's a wise man there. In verse 6, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, nor shall he make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. Doesn't touch a, a dead body. And the spiritual lesson here is when we want to be separated to the Lord, we don't want to go near anything that brings death. So, so this, this brings death in my life spiritually. I'm going to steer away from this. This part of the Nazarite vow would involve some isolation. If you had a close friend, a family member die, you can't get close to the, to the corpse, you would be separated during that time in a way where you would have to rely upon the Lord and it would be difficult. Samson was actually called by God to live in a Nazarite vow. And his commitment to God was going to be his source to his strength. And he broke this Nazarite vow in all three ways. He drank the fruit of the vine, drank wine when God called, called him not to, not necessarily what God's calling everyone to do, but what God had called Samson to do. No apparent consequences. He still had his strength. Tess touches the dead corpse of the lion still has his strength. But then he tells Delilah, if you cut my hair, I'll be like any other man. And he was right. When he cut his hair, then his strength de departed uh, from him. And so we see Samson uh, attempting to live out this Nazarite vow. In verse 9, and if anyone dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing, on the seventh day, he shall save his head. So if you just happen to be right in that moment where someone dies next to you and, and you touch their corpse, then the time of consecration is over. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priests to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest sh shall offer one of his sin offering and the other a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse. And he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in the first year as a trespass offering. But the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. Verse 13. 
Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle meeting, and he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb in the first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering. This is really interesting to me, that even being consecrated to the Lord in this commitment, this time of separation to draw near to the Lord, it doesn't eliminate sin. Because at the end of this Nazarite vow, what does he have to do? Bring a sin offering. And ultimately, the only answer to cleansing us from our sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And it doesn't mean that we don't respond to God's grace and separate ourselves unto him, but you could go live in a stinking cave by yourself with no internet, no social media, no interaction around any other people, and guess what? Still sin in that cave because we're sinners and need to bring a sin offering and need ultimately the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from our sin. So our consecration unto the Lord is one of, man, I'm forgiven by God. My sin problem's been solved by Jesus. I get to surrender my life uh, to the Lord. But no amount of separation or vow or commitment can cleanse us from our sin. And that's proof by the fact that at the end of this commitment, he still needed a sin offering. Or ram without blemish as a peace offering. A basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offering. Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord. With the basket of unleavened bread, the priest shall also offer its grain offering as its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. So when it's all done, you shave your hair and you burn it. That time of consecration was worship unto the Lord. Can you smell that? <laughs> Burned hair does not smell so good, especially if you got some hairspray or hair product uh, inside of there. Verse 19, And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and put them upon the heads of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. And they are holy for the priest, together with the breasts of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. And the Nazarite might drink and that the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering of for his separation, and beside that, whatever else his hand is able to provide, according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. Let's make application in our lives, something to pray about. Is there something that the Lord would want us to separate commit to for the purpose of drawing near to him. Not in some legalistic way, not thinking that that's what's going to earn or deserve our salvation, but simply out of response to uh, his grace. Pray about it. Go, all right, maybe it's 
no phone for a week. Imagine how much time we would have if we put our phones away for a week. Or the Lord just puts on your heart, go ahead and turn the TV off for a week. There's nothing wrong with watching TV, but the Lord maybe has put that on your heart. Just, just something that the Lord may, may lead to say, okay, let's try this and have this time that's separated and in a sense enter into my own time of consecration before the Lord. In verse 22, God instructs the priests in blessing God's people. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel, say to them. I love this. God's speaking to the priests, Aaron and his sons, and saying, this is how I want you to bless my people. Do you think God is angry at you? Do you think he's mad at you? That he's wanting to bring judgment on you? Even in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, God didn't speak to the priests and say, all right, this is how you pound my people. This is how you set my people straight. It's like, I want my people to be blessed. I want you to speak my blessing over their life. We begin in verse 22. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. So this was the priest's job to to pray this over the congregation, over the, the children of Israel. And also very much inside of Jewish culture is parents pray blessing upon their kids. Even today in an Orthodox uh, Jewish service is the parents will get with their kids, put their hands on their kids, and there'll be a prayer of blessing that's said over their kids. We see with Jacob when he's dying that he gets his 12 sons together and he pronounces blessing on them, he prays blessing on them, lays his hands upon them, and he, he prays for them. Joseph, in his wisdom, Joseph was a man of wisdom, he went and got his sons. And he's the only one of the 12 sons that gets a grandson and says, hey, I want you to pray blessing over my boys. If you have parents that are believers, if you haven't experienced this, I would encourage you to go to them and say, would you pray a prayer of blessing over me. Take your kids and say, would you pray over your grandkids? Would you put your hands on them and would you pray blessing upon them? For those of us that are parents, this is a really cool thing that we can do, is that we can put our hands on our kids and pray for God's blessing to be upon them. In the new covenant, who are the priests? We're the priests. And we get to pray blessing upon one another. You may say, I'm not a parent. I don't have kids. I'm, I'm single. How does this apply to me? You can go to believers and put your hand upon them and pray blessing upon them. Very few times will another believer say, no, don't pray for me. Most of the time they're going to say, yeah, please pray for me. I would love for you to pray blessing in my life. And this begins with, with the Lord bless you. There is nothing like God's blessing in our lives. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't duplicate it. You can't counterfeit it. To have God's favor, to have God's blessing upon your life. 
And God's blessing is that practical blessing of having our needs met, a roof over our head, food to eat, clothes on our back. But it's much more than that. To have God's blessing is to know that we're God's children, that we're loved by God, that the Spirit of God lives inside of us, that we're going to heaven, we're heavenly bound, blessed by by the Lord. This is what we long for in our lives, and this is what we long for for those that we love. This is what we long for for our kids. This is what we long for for our families, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what we long for for RMC, is to know the blessing of God that can only come from him. Sometimes we seek the blessings in the wrong places, don't we? We want this substance that can only come from God's glory and God's throne, but we start to seek it from the things of this world. And that's what the nation of Israel did. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, it says that they forsook the living God and hewn for themselves cisterns that could produce no water. So here's the source of living water that God wants to to pour out. But instead, they go dig wells in this arid climate in idolatry, working, 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 but there's no water there. There's, There's no substance there. What you're really longing for tonight is the blessing of God. Even more than anything in your marriage or anything in your vocation or anything in relationships or accomplishments, those things ultimately can't satisfy, but the blessing of God can. It's to the point that even in our lives when we're experiencing hardships and questions and and difficulties, when God's blessing is, is in our lives, there's a peace there. And we go, man, I know that I'm loved by God. I know that nothing can separate me from the love of God. So this is what we pray for for one another. The Lord bless you, and then the Lord keep you. This is the Lord guard you. God protect you, protect you from those physical dangers and those harms of this this world. But protecting us from the attack of Satan, protecting us from our own flesh, to be kept by the love of God, to be kept by the everlasting mercy of God. The Lord bless you. The Lord Lord keep you. This blessing is extremely personal. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. In verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. This is literally God's smile be upon you. This is what we see with the Father and his Son, Jesus, his only begotten. When the Father speaks audibly from heaven, he's expressing his pleasure for his Son. Jesus is baptized, not because he's a sinner, but he's being obedient to the Father's call. And the Father speaks from heaven and he says, that's my boy right there. He's a stud. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' glory is seen for a moment. The Father speaks, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm pleased with him. Hear him. Pay attention to Jesus. Put Put your focus upon Christ. The smile of the Father is upon Jesus. And the smile, the approval of the Father is upon us. And we say, really? How could that be? because of Jesus. When we believe and we trust in Jesus, we're robed in Christ's righteousness 
to where we have the favor of the Father. We have the love of the Father. We're his sons and and his daughters. And when you know the pleasure of God in this way, that's the blessing. It's face-to-face, it's personal, it's intimate. For those of you that are parents, remember when your kids are little, and all of our kids did this, I think most kids do it, but they get to that age where they just, they just love your face, right? They get all up close to your face and they're always touching your face and you just love your kid's face, those little baby face, and you just get face to face with your kid and you're just like, man, I love this kid. All you do is pee and poop on me, but I love you, you know? And your, your pleasure is just, just going upon your kid. As a grown man, 43 years old, when I, when I spend time with my dad and, and his eyes light up and he gives me a hug and, and just in his actions and his body language, he's saying, man, Eric, I love you. I'm like, oh, this feels good. Man, I'm, I'm loved by, by my dad. And whether you have that from a parent or not, you have that from your heavenly father. You're having that from your Abba, the one who loves you, you the most. So may his smile, may his, his pleasure, may we know that God is pleased with us because of what Christ has done. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. God's grace is the means in which God's blessing comes into our life. God's grace is the means in which his smile comes into our life. This is how we can trust that God has favor towards us is because he's gracious unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. And this is mind-blowing, especially the context. Because the context is consecrated unto God in sexual integrity. Consecrated unto God in this Nazarite vow. But then the Lord is showing the priests praying over God's people and the blessing comes through grace. And Jesus is the ultimate high priest pronouncing blessing through grace. Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth. There's going to be a huge burden and breakthrough that happens in our relationship with God when we stop trying to earn or deserve his pleasure and acceptance based on our performance. God, I know you're pleased with me. I read my Bible today. God, I know you're pleased with me. I tithed. Lord, I know you're pleased with me. I didn't do A, B, C, D. The only problem with that is, is God's not a debtor. We're not his employee. And then what happens when we don't read our Bible, when we don't give like we should, when we sin? Oh man, God doesn't love me. He doesn't have any pleasure towards me. Where we can rest in the grace of God. We can trust in the, in the grace of God and know that his grace brings in this pleasure, this face-to-face smile of God upon our lives. And lift up his countenance upon you, his eyes being attentive to you, and give you peace. The peace that surpasses understanding, that guards our hearts and minds. And Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our source of peace, our position in him, being robed in his righteousness, knowing that he's in control in our lives. This is a great thing to pray for one another, is that we would have God's peace. No matter our circumstances, that we could be in a place of peace. This really stood out to me today, verse 27. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Who puts 
the name of God upon the children of Israel? The priests. Through prayer and speaking this blessing, the name of God is put upon the children of Israel. Anytime you see the name of God in scripture, it speaks of the character and the nature of God. The character and the nature of God is put on God's people as the priests pray this prayer of blessing over the congregation. You can put the character of God on people that you love by praying God's blessing upon them. Praying God's face to shine upon them, that God would bless them, that God would keep them, that God would be be gracious to them. And the Lord works through prayer And before long, all of a sudden, that person's walking in the knowledge of who God is. The character of God has has marked them. Well, we're going to tackle one more chapter. And it happens to be the second longest chapter in the Bible. So you thought, man, we're getting through this pretty quick. Well, Psalms 119 is the only longer chapter in the Bible. And this is the consecration of the tabernacle. Now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed it and consecrated it and its furnishings and the altar and all of its utensils so he anointed them and consecrated them. This is a big deal. The tabernacle is finished. Not the temple but the tabernacle that was mobile. What was the center of the camp of Israel? The tabernacle which represented God's presence and worship. This is what we want to put in the center of our lives, is God's presence and worship, nothing less. God's presence and worship. So they bring gifts to celebrate the completion of the tabernacle. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses, who were the leaders of the tribes over those who were numbered, made an offering. And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and 12 oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, and for each one an ox, and they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these from them, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Then you shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen given to the sons of Gershon according to their service, and four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Moriah according to their service under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders. So now in verse 10, Judah brings their gift unto the Lord, the tribe of Judah. Now the leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed so that the leaders offered their offering before the Lord. For the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offering one leader each day for the dedication of the temple. So every day, one tribe is going to bring their offering. Their leader will bring it. So 12 days of these gifts being brought from the tribes. And the one who offered his offering on the first day was Nashon, the son of Amenadab from the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, and one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour, 
mixed with oil and grain offering, one gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offering, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nashan, the son of Abinadab. Now, what's amazing is it's the identical gift from all the other 11 tribes. And God records it in scripture. Now, if we were the ones writing this down, we'd say, here are the 12 tribes, and they all brought the same thing. <laughs> Shortest chapter in the Bible. We are done. Wrap it up, right? But God says, no, this is this tribe, and they brought this and this and this and this and this and this. And this is the next tribe, and they brought this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And we know that scripture is going to last for all of eternity. This world is going to pass away, but the world, word of God will never pass away. So what's the lesson here for us in this chapter? God sees your worship. He sees your sacrifice. He sees your labor of love, and it matters to him, and he will reward you openly in eternity. A lot of times, I think we believe that God doesn't see. God doesn't see the way that I'm serving. God doesn't see the way I'm trying to walk in faithfulness. God doesn't really notice that I'm here on a Wednesday night and I'm singing to him. And what God is saying is I notice. Of all of the things that he could record in scripture, he records this to let us know that the worship the sacrifice, the labor is not in vain unto the Lord. Who knows how it's going to turn out on a human level? We don't know. That's not for us to determine. All God asks us to do is be faithful, but we can be absolutely certain that God sees, he appreciates it, and it's going to be rewarded. God says you bring a cup of cold water to a child in his name, and he will surely reward you. The simple act of bringing water to a child, you're doing it in the name of being a disciple, a follower of Christ, and God says, I'm going to reward you. Maybe the most rewarded believers in heaven are going to be moms. As moms have served their children, God sees, he notices, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to reward in Hebrews, it tells us this, in Hebrews 6, verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you've shown towards his name, and that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. God sees that labor of love. He sees that sacrifice that you make. Galatians 6, 9 says, don't let us grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we would do not lose heart. So maybe you're in that place of like, man, I'm bringing my silver platter to the Lord. I'm bringing my oxen to the Lord. And you know what? The person next to me seems to be bringing the same sacrifice, the same offering. It doesn't necessarily feel like there's anything special about my life. And God's saying, oh, that is awesome. <laughs> that is such precious worship to me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for serving me. And I'm gonna reward you openly. I'm gonna graciously reward you when you get to heaven. So we jump down all the way to verse 84. And we get the summary 
of all the 12 gifts, the community, all added together. Verse 84. This was the dedication offering from the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. 12 silver platters, 12 silver bowls, and 12 gold pans. Each silver platter weighed 130 shekels, and each bowl was 70 shekels. All the silver of the vessels weighed 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The 12 gold pans of incense weighed 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold of the pans weighed 120 shekels. All the oxen for the burnt offering were 12 young bulls. The rams, 12. The male lambs in their first year, 12. With the grain offering and the kid goats as a sin offering, 12. And all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings were 24 bulls. The rams, 60. The male goats, 60. And the lambs in their first year, 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. You might be wondering, how did these nomads in the wilderness get so much gold and silver? Remember when they left Egypt, God instructed them, go to your neighbors, let them know that you're leaving, and ask for their gold and their silver and their jewelry. And the Egyptians are like, yeah, here you go. (laughs) And it just showed God's favor and God's deliverance to, to the nation of Israel. Verse 89, when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony for between the two cherubim thus he spoke to him how beautiful what a wonderful picture that God speaks to Moses over the mercy seat and God speaks to us because he's merciful because he's gracious he meets us in his mercy and grace for us tonight as we conclude as I'd love to just pray for you and as we head into communion is to to pray this prayer of blessing for one another and then we're going to enter into communion and as we enter into communion is see your high priest Jesus who is the sacrifice for our sin who is the lamb of God and his sacrifice brings this prayer into reality where God gets face to face with you. Let God get face to face with you tonight. Let him get right up in your personal space, your heavenly father, and hear his voice where he declares to you, I love you. You're my boy. You're my son. You're my daughter. And in you, I'm well pleased. So let's stand together and let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for Rocky Mountain Calvary my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we come before you not in our own efforts, in our own strength, but we come before you trusting in the blood of Jesus, trusting in you, Jesus, as our sacrifice for our sin and our faithful and merciful high priest. And I ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would bless Rocky Mountain Calvary with that spiritual blessing, that substance that can only come from you? Would you provide for financial needs, for for medical bills, for for mortgages, for rent, for, for cars and for clothes? 
But Lord, would you bless even more so than that with every spiritual blessing in Christ? Would you bless homes? Would you bless marriages? Or would you bless singles? Would you bless the teens and, and the kids? And we ask for your richest, deepest blessing to be in our hearts and our lives. And God, would you keep us? Would you guard us? Would you keep us safe physically by your grace as we're living in this world, driving around, getting on airplanes, living in our homes? Would, would you keep us safe? Would you be gracious to our physical health? Lord, but would you, you keep us spiritually? Lord, protect us from the attack of the enemy. Would you guard RMC from the wiles of Satan and his plans and his schemes? Lord, and we specifically pray over the next generation, the children and the teens and the young adults, and would you, would you keep them and guard them? Guard them from how Satan would want to rip them off. For all ages, we're susceptible, so God, would you keep us? Keep us in your, in your love. And Lord, would you make your face shine upon RMC? May this church be a place where we know the smile of God. Would you smile afresh upon us? May we know that we know that we're loved by God. May we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because of you, Jesus, because we're robed in your righteousness, would you lift that weight of legalism off of our shoulders? For those that feel they have to be good enough or try hard enough or, or read more or do better to earn your smile, Lord, may you smile upon them by your grace. And so would you be gracious to us? Lord, in ways that we can't, where we fall short, where we're not enough, where, where we sin, we ask that you would be gracious to us. Would you be gracious to us with the knowledge of Jesus? Would you be gracious to us with our effectiveness in the kingdom? Would you open up doors for us and give us the strength to walk through them for your glory? And Lord, would you lift up your countenance upon us? Would your attention be upon us? Would you hear our prayers? And would you give us peace? Lord, for those that are wrestling with difficult circumstances, wrestling with sin, for those that are discouraged, depressed, Lord, where anxiety is taking hold, God, would you, would you give peace? Would you give peace? And now, Jesus, as we celebrate communion together, may we understand that it's through your broken body and your shed blood that we're able to enter into this deep face-to-face -face relationship with you, Father, to experience your good pleasure. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.